the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are continuing on our series of a book entitled Homecoming. Uh, that was published last year by me, uh, so with the byline below, which says how the mystery of the new covenant brings both Jew and Gentile back to Abba Father. And this is part three of a uh, topic, subtopic. Um, we're trying to answer a question uh, which actually consists of the following. Why did we, as the Gentile Christian Church, disconnect from our Hebrew foundations and our Hebrew roots? And um, we've been talking about some history. Uh, the last couple of shows, we have gone into uh, where and how this separation of the two groups of Jew and Gentile, um, where it began and how it began. And we're going to do some more expansion on that uh, this morning. Just to catch you up, uh, we have um, basically em- been emphasizing the chapters in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 especially, um, along with uh, the—well, I'm trying to think now. Yeah, it's actually more than just chapters 2 and 3 of Ephesians. It's also chapter 4 and 5 and 6. So uh, it's virtually the entire letter— to uh, the Ephesians, written by Paul the Apostle. And you need to read two chapters in the book of Galatians with those um, five chapters of the book of Ephesians. And um, so that's Galatians 2 and 3 that really tails into what God is doing by rolling out this mystery, or this secret plan, as the Jewish Bible calls it, um, and then you have to go over to Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, because that's a continuation of the, the same theme that Father God is doing, in essence, a construction project. In fact, that's the name of this chapter in this book. It's Solving the Mysterious Construction Project of One New Man in both Messiah Jesus and Father God. And so we have 
continued in this chapter, it's actually chapter 11 of um, the book Homecoming, and we're in a subsection dealing with where and how did the Gentile church um, think it was a good idea to break away from our Hebrew foundations, especially in light of the fact that uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, with you seeing that God is weaving together, he's making a, a, a fabric of two separated groups. And through his son, through Father God's son, Jesus the Messiah, he is knocking down a wall of separation, keeping us apart. And with the realization that the covenant system that we see in what we call the Old Testament, but really should be called the First Testament or the Jewish Testament, that covenant system that was made between Abraham and Father God in Genesis chapters 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17, um, they basically set up a, a system of a compact or a covenant or a contract um, that involves the, the God's answer to the spiritual rebellion that came down from heaven and invaded earth back in Genesis chapter 3. We studied last week that mankind was given authority and um, the legal permission, if you will, to have dominion over all of God's material creation in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Um, Unfortunately, by the time that Genesis chapter 3 rolls around, we see that mankind um, has, through the deception of a frustrated cherubim, uh, fallen angel who began a rebellion against God that you can see in Isaiah chapter uh, 14, verses 12 to the end, and then also check out Ezekiel 28, beginning at verse 14 to the end. And uh, as we said last week, uh, that rebellion began in heaven. And it was a spiritual rebellion against God that was transferred down from the second heaven down to the material creation of earth. And uh, we also mentioned in last week's show that Satan was extremely bitter and frustrated and angry, quite unhappy that he was not given the authority as a formal, or former, I should say, former high cherubim. Um, There's a lot of professional opinions when you uh, look into the people who comment on theology that uh, it's very likely that Satan before the fall actually was one of the two covering cherubs on the um, mercy seat, which was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That's how close he really was to God. And you can see that um, alluded to, uh, indirectly at least, in Ezekiel 28, beginning at verse 14. So he was uh, an exalted figure, and as we see in the book of Job, um, Satan can't figure out why God gave to mankind his likeness, his image, and uh, delegated the almost plenary authority to run the earth. 
the material creation, which, by the way, Father God uh, opined, gave his opinion um, in Genesis 1, 26 through uh, 31. He looked at everything he had made um, during the previous six days, and he's declaring on the seventh day the earth and the material creation to be not just good, but very good. And the question is, as we go through the Scripture, did God, Father God, ever change his mind about the first opinion he issued regarding what he had created? And that that really is an important question. Because if we study our Jewish roots um, and we understand the covenant system that applies to us Gentiles in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, uh, what God is rolling out is that there is a connection between the Gentile understanding of a Messiah coming to rescue mankind from a cursed earth, Um, but we don't understand the covenant system. We don't understand that the covenants function as agreements um, sealed in blood. That's why co- what's, covenants are different than contracts. Contracts are basically agreements for goods and for services, etc. But covenants are deeper. They're way more profound. And um, they are, in essence, relational obligations between two contracting parties that say, basically, my job is, to use the Hebrew word, hesed, which is not really well translated into English. Um, some Bibles say mercy, other Bibles say um, loving kindness. But hesed is a Hebrew word for something that includes the motivation. What motivates you as a member of or a participant in this covenant? Your motivation is selfless. Your motivation is focused on the other participant with whom you have agreed to enter into this covenant of blood. It's called the blood covenant. And in essence, your focus is not what you can get out of the agreement. It's what and how you can serve, be available, be helpful, be attendant to the other person in the covenant. And the Middle Eastern uh, culture had these types of relationships. Um, I'm going to refer you just to a book that um, I finished not long ago. It's phenomenal. It was written by um, Pastor Jim Garlow. I think it was in the late 90s. Um, And he has a co-author. I cannot recall his name right now, but it's called The Blood Covenant. And it's worth reading so that you can get an idea how and why it's so critical that we bring these two covenants together, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And personally, I don't like the word old uh, because I think that was messaging by some early church fathers. Um, When you use the word old, it sounds like it doesn't pertain anymore. It's not important. It's not germane. It's not relevant but um, I think a better use 
or description would be the first covenant or the Jewish testament. Um, because things didn't end with the arrival of Jesus. Uh, as far as these obligations that Father God made with Father Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And what's important to realize is that there's a group of beneficiaries as a, as a object or the purpose when these covenants were made. And those in, individual beneficiaries um, are basically called people of the nations. As the Jews would refer to the people of the nations, um, we are called goyim, as Gentiles. Goyim. That's the plural of the use of the word goy, which means person of the nation. And there are only two groups in, this, in the Scripture, only two groups of people in the Bible. There's the Hebrews slash Jews and the people of the nations, the Gentiles. Well, God is right now in a mode of taking off the seals of the scroll. This is what Jesus was allowed to do because of paying the ultimate price, qualifying him to do that. And as these scrolls are unfolded in this era, in this time zone, we are discovering that God is allowing us to supernaturally connect the dots through his Holy Spirit, um, through his Son, and starting to appreciate that this agreement that God made with the Hebrew people was to, in essence, set up a perfect example or a near-perfect example or a prototype, if you will. Um, You know, prototype, some people say, what's a prototype? Well, think of when the first electrical car um, from Tesla was coming out. They built something called a prototype, and they put it uh, on display that people could examine it, look at it, maybe even test drive it, study it. And it was going to be the forerunner of something that was going to be multiplied over and over and over again. And part of the covenant process that God selected, and when he chose Abraham, who was, by the way, a Gentile, (laughs) he's the first Jew who was a former Gentile because he was coming out of what they call the Ur-U-R of the Chaldees, which is uh, modern-day Iraq, before he was told to leave that land pull up stakes, take his family, and leave that land and go to a land that God would show him. And God knew that because mankind had, in Genesis 3, voluntarily handed over their authority to a rebellious angel, who, as a fallen rebellious angel, he had some residual power after the fall uh, from heaven, but he didn't have permission to use his residual power unless he could get legal permission or authority from someone who could give it out. Satan realized that God was never going to give him that authority to operate on earth. But what if he could trick man into man or woman or both to hand over voluntarily? because they're agreeing with his um, propositions, his suggestions. And once 
mankind agreed with Satan's rebellion, well, then they were, in essence, handing over their legal permission or authority in order so that Satan's power could be operable, implemented, put into place, activated. Because power without authority cannot operate. You need both. Uh, The example we use oftentimes is when you describe what's authority and what's power. Well, um, when you see uh, a peace officer um, has a badge, well, he can say and point to that badge and say, I am authorized to enforce um, the ways of society, the laws, and I also have commensurate power to go along with the badge authority, permission. And that power, of course, is his revolver or um, his shotgun or his, you know, whatever ever kinds of weapons he has uh, inside the uh, police vehicle. And the two go together. But one without the other uh, doesn't work. And so those were the rules of the game. Satan understood them. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve did not. And they got tricked. They were defrauded into handing over something that's very, very um, difficult to get back. But we're in the process uh, through God's covenants, and his covenant was to send a, through Abraham's seed, a Messiah, an anointed one, a deliverer, a redeemer. What's redeemer mean? You're getting back something that was lost. You had it, but you lost it. Now you're redeeming it back. You're getting it back, something that you earlier had in your possession. And in essence, that Messiah was going to have a dual nature. He was going to be the son of the living God, the God of Israel, Father God, Father Creator. And so as such, he would be divine. But because of the trespass that happened uh, with the original couple of mankind handing over their authority to a rebellious angel to operate on the material world, material creation, the solution also had to be um, a representative who also was representing mankind. So this Messiah was not just going to be a spirit. He also had to have another quality, which was human flesh. So the big debate was, you know, was Jesus more son of God than he was son of man? Was he more son of man than he was son of God? The fact is, he was both very God of very God, and he was very man of very man. He had a job to do. But the fact that he's son of man uh, was messaging. It was messaging to the enemy, the fallen spirit world, to say, My father never changed his mind as to whom he's going to give dominion about ruling, having dominion over, having authority over the material creation because mankind was made in God's image and God's likeness. And that's where man got his original purpose. His original purpose was to allow God to deposit his likeness in man, not with him, not near him, but in him. And then 
image it out horizontally to other people so they could see what Father God's nature and characteristics and qualities actually sounded like and looked like. And isn't that what Jesus did as both Son of God and Son of Man? In fact, he had to tell the apostles one time, I think he was asked by Philip, he says, uh, he said, Lord, you're going, you said you're going to the Father. Show us the Father. And Jesus is perplexed because he says, I, Philip, I've been with you all this time, and you don't know that when you see me, when you're looking at me, you're also looking at my Father? That's how close and together and connected and intimate we're the the Messiah, as a human and as a divine son of God, um, was with his spiritual father as creator. And we have to understand that because the significance of Jew and Gentile coming together into one new man is also messaging. It's messaging to the enemy that this Son of God and Son of Man, Messiah, is going to knock down the wall of enmity, of hostility between these two groups. And when that happens, when we bring together not just the last third of the Holy Gospel, but also the first two-thirds in connection with it, because these two halves of the book, so to speak, although they're not halves, it's pretty much one-third and two-thirds— But these two sections of the Bible are linked together with one consistent covenant story. And if we as Gentiles don't understand that, it's like like you going to uh, try to buy a home and um, you go to a real estate uh, office and they have their posters and they'll sit down with their computers and they'll show you all kinds of, of homes, et cetera, et cetera all the features of a home, all the uh, elements of a home. And what would your reaction be if you went into a particular real estate office and they sat you down and you told them your needs, that you needed a place in which to dwell? By the way, that's what Father God is saying in Isaiah 66, first two verses. Check it out. He's looking for a place where he can have rest. And we see lots of verses in the both the Old Testament and the New Testament, talks about we are the temple of God. We are the home of God. We are the abiding place of God. We are the dwelling place of God. It's a repetitive um, term over and over. And God is basically saying, I am the Father who created the uh, nuclear family, and I know what I'm doing because um, I know who to put in charge. If you were to look uh, at a real estate uh, agent's photos, and all this agent was showing you uh, over and over and over was a roof, R-O-O-F, of a house, different houses, different roofs, Spanish tile roofs, and then uh, shingle roofs, and all the different types of roofs, composite material roofs, you would probably after a while say, you know, I need a place in which to live. And all you're showing me, Mr. Real Estate Agent, or Miss Real Estate Agent, is a roof. Um, I can't dwell 
inside of a roof. But see, that's what we do when we take the Holy Bible and we only describe the last one-third of the Bible and saying it's all about the roof. It's all about um, Jesus coming so that when I die, I get to go to a place, be transported to a place that's away from my earthly inheritance, writing off the nations um, that were mentioned in the covenants as lost causes and basically giving up my earthly inheritance and my authority that Jesus is giving me back to reconquer this material creation away from the control and power of the enemy. So, God is now messaging and saying, you need to get reconnected, Gentile church, with your Hebrew roots. If you do not, you won't really know what a house even really looks like and what it includes. You will be focused on a roof, so it's kind of a launch pad, so you can get away from your inheritance of earth, get away from your inheritance as nations, people of the nations, which were mentioned in all of the covenants with the patriarchs. We were the ultimate beneficiaries of the Jewish example, the Jewish prototype of how to have a relationship of experience with God. That's the whole point. The goal of this journey is union with God. And in this case, if we're separated, we will say reunion with God. It is not to die and go to a place. That's Greek thinking. That's linear thinking. Jewish thinking is circular. It's return. It's come back home. It's a family reunion back to the Father that you were separated from in Genesis chapter 3 when you bought into the rebellion that the spiritual world introduced to your paradise material kingdom. You ready for some seatbelts to put on for the next half hour? Looking forward to it. See you after the break. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. So we are answering the question uh, that arose out of Chapter 11 of the Homecoming book that I wrote uh, and was, came out last year. The Chapter 11 of this Homecoming book is entitled Solving the Mysterious Con- Construction Project of One New Man and Messiah, One New Man and Abba Father. And we are at the point of trying to answer the question, what motivated um, the Gentile church um, to think it was a good idea to discontinue from its Hebrew roots and go separately? So I wanted to, um, we talked about some church fathers um, I think we talked about Marcion of Sinope last uh, last week. We also talked about um, Eusebius. We also talked about a man named Origen and uh, Justin Martyr, and just to name a few. And I wanted to 
uh, read from you uh, a book where I did some research from by Joseph Farah called The Restitution of All Things, but particularly focusing on this section uh, dealing with um, Constantine. Um, there were, bef- well, let me just give you a brief um, introduction. Constantine was the Roman emperor who had a come to Jesus moment, literally. Um, on the bridge, he got an um, image of the cross of, of Messiah Jesus as a sign that he was going to win a great victory uh, against um, some challengers to the Roman Empire. And um, it turned out that way. And so he um, basically converted to Christianity. Um, leading up to this, I wanted to mention some taxes that were um, placed on some predecessors of Constantine. Um, and these taxes uh, were basically after the dis- diaspora of 70 AD when Titus um, destroyed the second temple uh, built by Solomon. And this was kind of payback for ongoing Jewish uh, rebellions against the Roman government um, over what they called Palestine, but what the Jews called Israel. And um, there was, shortly after the destruction of the Second Temple in um, AD 70, uh, or CE, if you will, the Common Era, the Roman Empire instituted a two denarii, two T-W-O, denarii tax on Jews called the Fiscus um, Judaicus. There's going to be some Latin words that I'm going to try to pronounce the best I can. But it was first uh, imposed by a, an earlier Roman Empire. His name was Vespasian. But it was in retaliation for an earlier um, Jewish-Roman war. And um, the Roman Jewish historian named Josephus, he wrote that this tax was imposed on all Jews throughout the empire not just on those who took part in the revolt against Rome. Worse, though their temple was destroyed, the Jews were forced to pay this tax in place of the levy that they had once paid for temple upkeep. (laughs) Think about it. The temple was gone. It was destroyed. To add spiritual insult to injury, the new tax was to go to the temple of something called Juniper Capitolinus, which was the main center of pagan Roman religion. That was rubbing salt in the wound. Only Jews who had abandoned their religion were exempt from paying this new tax. But worst of all, while the tithe paid in the temple of Jerusalem was required only of adult men ages 20 to 50, this new Roman tax, the Fiscus Judaicus, was also demanded of women, of children, of the elderly, and even of Jewish slaves. The author says you can imagine that the Messianic Jews might claim to belong to another faith to avoid this tax, though uh, he couldn't find any historical evidence of that. But in spite of this tax, the Roman Empire's Christian population, both 
Jewish and Gentile, according to um, Joseph Farah, was exploding in the latter part of the first century. When uh, Dominican became the emperor in 81 CE or 81 AD, many Christians, at least in their religious observances, were hard to distinguish from the Jews. Most were likely still observing the Jewish Sabbath and the Jewish feasts. For this reason, perhaps, the emperor further began to exact this tax called Fiscus Judaicus from those who had concealed that they were Jews and even from those who simply observed Jewish customs. The historian Suetonius noted that Roman officials once examined a 90-year-old to see if he was circumcised. It didn't take long for Christians to petition the emperor for an exemption to the tax because they were claiming now that they were not Jews. So Dominican was murdered in the year 86, um, uh, I'm sorry, 96 AD, and his successor named Nerva, N-E-R-V-A, relaxed the rules of collection of this tax to impact only those who openly practiced Judaism. Nevertheless, this tax remained in effect for more than 200 years. So now we come to Constantine. Uh, In 313, Constantine the Great, who claimed to be a convert to Christianity, approved something called the Edict of Milan, which ended the official persecution of Christians that had been going on with Nero and Caligula, all the earlier um, bloodthirsty uh, Roman emperors. Later in his reign, Constantine the Great, the official Roman church and state became one. With Constantine weighing in on church matters and the church influencing matters of civil governance. By the year 321, Constantine had decreed that Christians and Roman sun, S-U-N, S-U-N, worshipers, should be united in observing the venerable day of the sun, or now known as Sunday. So that was in 321. In 325, Constantine convened the first council of Nicaea. If you want to look that up, um, it's something you should probably do some homework on, N-I-C-E-A, Nicaea, where it was decided to separate the date of Easter from the Jewish Passover celebration. So I'm going to read to you Constantine's official decree and what it stated. It was declared improper to follow the custom of the Jews in the celebration of this holy festival because their hands, the Jews, having been stained with crime, the minds of those wretched men are necessarily blinded Let us then have nothing in common with the Jews. Listen how he's going to describe them. Who are our adversaries? Now, don't forget what the first church looked like, the first um, commonwealth of Israel looked like in the book of Acts. 
It started out being exclusively Jewish, as we can see in Acts uh, chapters 1 and 2, but by the time we hit Acts 15, this is me making color commentary now, I'm not reading any more of the edict yet, I'll come back to that. But in Acts 15, there were so many Gentiles that had been redeemed and delivered and saved that the Jews had to bring all the leaders in back to the Council of Jerusalem to figure out what to do with this tidal wave. Um, so we're studying. So let's go back to this edict that um, in th- 325, this council, first council of Nicaea is basically doing with separating the first church Gentiles and first church Jews from each other. It goes on. It says, let us studiously avoid all contact with that evil way. For how can they entertain right views on any point who, after having compassed the death of the Lord, being out of their minds, are guided not by sound reason, but by an unrestrained passion wherever their innate madness carries them? Lest your pure minds appear to share in the customs of a people so utterly depraved, Therefore, this irregularity must be corrected in order that we may no more have anything in common with those, this is a word that, it's a P-A-L-L-R, I'm sorry, P-A-L-L-R-I-C-I-D-E-S, parasites, and the murders of the Lord. No single point in common with the perjury of the Jews. Now, if you just tuned in, What I am reading from is Constantine, through the First Council of Nicaea, Constantine, the Roman emperor, making edicts separating the um, church, the first church, uh, separating out the Gentiles from the Jews. We need to go back and study this history, because if we don't understand this, we won't understand how this all rolled out. So going on to page 124 of The Restitution of All Things by Joseph Farah, He goes on to say, following the reign of Emperor Constantine, the Roman Empire continued to push Sunday worship exclusively, even to the point of forbidding idleness, that's in quotes, on Saturday. Well, of course, you know that the Shabbat for the Jew is a day of rest. And now we have the emperor Uh, the Roman Empire, Constantine saying, look, you can't be idle on Saturday. You have to be out working. So the church-state union thus did more to divide Christianity from its Jewish roots, more than probably any other factor, enforcing, as it will, an official version of anti-Semitism. And the words that I just read from you on page 123 in that Um, edict from the First Council of Nicaea, Um, that was about as anti-Semitic as it comes. I don't think you can get any more um, glaringly obvious. So looking at some more recent history, this separation from the, the Jews and the Gentiles went on. Meanwhile, this is back in uh, page 124 of the Restitution of All Things. Meanwhile, coinciding with the new wave of European anti-Semitism, the Fiscus Judaicus, which is that earlier tax we talked about, made a return 
in the year 1342 under a new name, under the reign of Emperor Louis XIV, the Bavarian, who ordered all Jews, listen, above age 12 and possessing, I guess this is a monetary um, amount, 20 guldens, it's spelled G-U-L-D-E-N-S, to pay one gulden annually for government protection. The practice was justified on the grounds that Louis XIV, um, as emperor, was a legal successor successor of the Roman emperors, um, and thus he was the rightful recipient of the temple tax that the Jews earlier paid to the Romans after the destruction of the second temple. You see the irony there. Again, adding spiritual insult to injury, this tax on the Jews for a temple that no longer existed after the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD by the Roman Emperor Titus, the tax was collected by Emperor Louis XIV, the Bavarian. It was collected on Christmas Day. Persecution of the Jews continued century after century with the pogroms in Russia, um, Germany, and Poland, and further crusades throughout Europe. In 1290, the country of England expelled the Jews on an auspicious day in Jewish history, which is the ninth of Av. Av is um, a month. Of Av means the Jewish word father and um, takes place usually around the month of August um, in the Gregorian calendar. The date both of the first and second temples were destroyed, which is true. Um, the ninth of Av uh, was the actual date of both the first and second Jewish temples. It goes on. In 1306, France expelled the Jews two days before the ninth of Av on the Hebrew calendar. So we have England in 1290 expelling the Jews and France expelling the Jews in 1306, both on or near the ninth of Av. It goes on. In 1492, Spain expelled the Jews on the tenth of Av. And going way ahead to the modern era, in 1941, the German SS commander Heinrich Himmler received formal approval from the Nazi party for the final solution, that's in quotes, the final solution on the 9th of Av, which launched the Holocaust in which nearly one-third of the world's Jewish population perished. Joseph Ehr goes on to say, no people in history have faced such persecution over thousands of years, and no people have emerged from these attempts at annihilation, victorious back in their own homeland in the 21st century. A lot of people who believed of in that God was finished with the Jews, people who used to teach in seminaries had to go back to the drawing board and say, this has never happened before. What is going on? Well, what was going on was the fulfillment of much Jewish um, pr- prophetical utterances in the Jewish Testament, what we call the Old Testament. We need to really change that, probably. Um, 
And these prophecies were coming true. The Jews were coming home full circle. They were coming back, making Aliyah to their original promised land in the Jewish covenants that we talked about in the first half of the show. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. I'm going to add two more to that. Genesis 26 and Genesis 28, because now we have all three patriarchs in five different chapters in Genesis. So we have the covenants with, between Father God and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in those five chapters I just mentioned. Going back to the Restitution of All Things book, the Christian church throughout its history has too often played the role of bystander in the persecution of Jews or persecutor. So the same question is asked by Joseph Farah in his book. How could that happen given Christianity's Jewish roots with the worship of a Jewish Messiah as the Son of God, Father God, Adonai, Av, as they call him, because Av is the Jewish word for father. And all of its early adherents, all being Jewish, it could only happen because Christians did not understand their own good book. They neither read, nor they comprehended, nor understood the front two-thirds of the book. That's some color commentary that I'm adding to this. Um, reading from Joseph Farah. Today's churches spent most of their study of the Bible in the epistles in the New Testament. Most of the rest of the time is divided between Gospels, the four Gospels, the Acts, and, yes, the Psalms with some dabbling in the prophets. And he's asking the question, the author um, here is, is that generally your experience in your Bible study? And so this is Joseph affair weighing in now. This is his opinion. If so, he says, let me bluntly suggest that it's the wrong approach. We need to understand the front two-thirds of the book to comprehend the back of the book. Can't understand, this is me now, uh, adding color commentary. You can't understand the back of the book um, if you take the back of the book out of its Jewish context. Context is everything. It's everything. Keep in mind, this is Joseph Fair now, when Jesus and the apostles were teaching, the only scriptures that were known at the time were the Hebrew scriptures or the Tanakh. Jesus said they testified of him, as we see in John 5, 39, and indeed they do. And after the resurrection, Jesus spent a whole day with two believers on their way to see if I say this right, Emmaus, going through the scriptures and how they pointed to him. And he refers over to Luke chapter 24. And I think I'm going to go down to just going to wrap it up here out of his book. Many Christians in the world today have a problem that 
they may be expecting another type of Jesus, a Gentile Jesus, or one who behaves as he did during the first visitation, instead of the coming of an Israel-centric Messiah, Jewish Messiah, who will return as a conquering king. And I'm going to add here, to reauthorize um, us as his followers to, as we obey the word of God, as we obey the commands of Jesus and the Father God and the directions of the Holy Spirit, that we will be empowered to take back this stolen material creation. If I've been asked by people sometimes, where is it in the scripture that, um, that we were given earth? Well, obviously it's in um, Genesis 1 and 2, and we've talked about that, but I want to refer you to another location in the, in the Psalms. Uh, check this out. In Psalm 115, go to verse 16 of Psalm 115. It says, The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's. You ready for this? But the earth is... He has given to the children of men. We really have to reorient our focus, our attention to what God's goal is. God's goal is by sending this Jewish Messiah. His Jewish name is Yeshua HaMashiach. Yeshua means he saves in Hebrew, HaMashiach. Ha is the word the, Mashiach is the word Messiah. Messiah is a word that means anointed one a redeemer, a savior, a deliverer. And what's he delivering us from? Where is he delivering us to? Let me go back and read um, some more references in the psalm so we can get... By the way, to redeem something is to buy back uh, something that you earlier had. And what, <laughs> what's happening is, what did we earlier have in Genesis 1 and 2? We had authority over the earth, and we had a relationship with our Father God. We lost both. We lost our relationship with our Father in the fall of Genesis chapter 3, when Satan tricked us into handing over our dominion, our authority over the earth, to him. And we lost our inheritance of earth. Let me read to you something out of Psalms again. Go to Psalms 2, and this is a discussion between Father God and his son, Yeshua, his son, Jesus. And starting in verse 7 of Psalm 2, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. That's a capital M, by the way. You are my son. Both of those are capitalized. My, the M of my, and the S of son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's a capital Y there. Check number eight out, verse eight of Psalm two. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Notice he didn't say, I will give you heaven for your inheritance. He didn't say that. He says, ask of me, and I will give you the nations, that's plural, for your inheritance. Gets, gets better. Next line. And the ends of the earth for your possession. God has never given up on his original 
assignment, his original blueprint of putting man in charge over the material creation. He didn't give it to fallen angels. And he goes on to say, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel, and it's, it's going to get messy. And you can see uh, references to when Jesus comes back in Revelation 19. Of, of This is not the same Jesus that we see in Psalm 23. This is a different Jesus who's coming back with a different mission this time. He's going to do away with the acts of the devil. That's what 1 John 3, 8 says. But... Looking at these two references to Psalms, I'm going to end with this, and I want to take you over to Romans chapter 8. What's the connection here? You ready for this? And... For we did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, listen, Abba, Father... The Spirit himself, I'm reading from 8.15, now 16, eight, Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, listen, and if children, then heirs, H-E-I-R-S, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Are you ready for that? That promise in Psalm 115 and Psalm 2 applies to us because we are joint heirs with Christ because we have the same Father with the same plan. Wow. See you next week. Hope you have a ton of simple truth moments this upcoming week. God bless you. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.